0: Fair warning.
1: So welcome. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to our fourth class of this exploration. Uh, I think we started by talking about an adventure or maybe even a journey with uh, mindfulness of the body. Majjhima Nikaya 119 Kaya Sutta. And when we met on Tuesday, David introduced the teachings around jhanas. And Ying introduced the section in the sutta on progress through mindfulness, which included a number of wonderful similes. I don't know if you guys are like me. I really love the similes. There's something uh, about them that I find a little delight uh, in them. And we left the day or the class by encouraging you maybe to try a different practice than you had done before, or if you were finding it juicy or fruitful, to stay with a uh, maybe another class, uh, sorry, another practice. I'm sorry. To stay with a practice that you had already been doing, and to maybe reread the sutta again. Of course, uh, we're reading the sutta over and over, and it's amazing for me. Like all the little tidbits that I find, or the new understandings that come to fore when I read them again. So maybe you're having the same experience. So now, I would just like to open it up. Um, do anybody have any comments or questions about the practices, about rereading it, about uh, some of what we covered yes on Tuesday before we start with some more material this morning? I'd like to just open it up. And if you like to use your Zoom hand, that's helpful for us to see who's raised their hand. So any questions
2: or comments or something if you'd like to share? Maybe we'll all ask uh, what about the similes?
1: These are, um, There are different similes that pointed in different places. We had four similes for each for the jhana. And then we had all these similes about progress through the body with Mara uh, being able to enter or not being able to enter. And maybe I'll just drop in a few little observations. One is that these similes with Mara, first he's talking about uh, clay when you throw a rock. At, or a big ball of clay or if you throw a light string at a solid hardwood we might say this is the earth element and then second was being able to light a fire with a, a wet wood or dry wood the fire element and this uh, idea of having um, water a, a, a jug that's full of water or empty of water water element. So there's a way in which there's these subtleties that are built into the sutta. You, and you only notice if you've read it a number of
2: times. And I certainly didn't notice that the first time I read it. But... Yes, Nancy. Well, now that you've brought up the similes. <laughs> so
3: the one, um, the one about uh, drenching or moistening, uh, like working with clay or working with bread. So uh, the verb kneading to knead the dough. So in the, it immediately brought to mind a way of preparing tea. In the Japanese tea tradition, there are two ways of of making a bowl of tea one is to whisk the tea and you have this infusion with kind of like a cappuccino like foam on top but another way to make that that's thin tea and then there's something called thick tea and the action that is done with the whisk is also called kneading
2: Mm
3: -hmm. so it's um you know, about twice the amount of tea, matcha tea powder and maybe half the water. So you are really just trying to add enough liquid to get this very thick, viscous um, brew, so to speak. It's kind of shocking if you've never tasted it before because it's very, very strong. But the setting for drinking thick tea is different from the setting for drinking thin tea. And what happens in, in the thick tea part of the tea gathering is that this bowl of very viscous uh, brewed tea is, uh, is prepared in one bowl that's enjoyed by all of the guests. Mm-hmm. So everybody drinks from this one bowl of tea, which is different from thin tea where everybody gets their own bowl. So I guess it made me think about, you know, this is, the, this is the, the kind of the crux, the heart of the gathering that creates this moment of unity um, between the hosts and all the guests drink from the same bowl of tea. It's very powerful. It's usually a small number of people, like about five, but it can be more, maybe seven, because um, you don't want the tea to cool uh, before the last guest uh, gets to drink but um, for me I don't know that was a very powerful image of this idea i was just kind of like pic- picturing the whisk kneading the tea and, you know like in the core of my body instead of this kind of bread imagery nice. um, but then the idea of how it like um, how it how it spreads out to create mo- uh, unity with other people I thought was also you know maybe a nice uh, a benefit of mindfulness of of the body
1: mm, thank you so, thank you for sharing that nancy and i can and not having done the tea ceremony myself but i'm imagining that it's very much a mindfulness of the body practice the way that you handle the instruments and handle everything is very right to be present and precise and, and so
0: and I would just add to Nancy, you, you, for others who may not know this, I mean, this ancient tradition is closely aligned with lineages of Buddhist practice. And that's one thing that may be useful background for people to know. The tea ceremony is kind of infused with pun intended, uh, you know, practice. But also it's the same, you know, finding finding the simile that works for you is important. And in this one too, there's a way in which you said, Nancy, perhaps, perhaps uh, twice as much water, or sorry, twice as much matcha as water. And that's the, that's that activity of mind in the first jhana that we talked about, sort of, you know, carefully, carefully working so that the body is drenched, stilled, steeped, right? a tea metaphor within the metaphor, <laughs> completely filling it with, um, you know, with the pleasure born of seclusion of the meditation just wanted to note those things
1: thank you David and then Nancy and Jerry I see you raised your hand but we'll uh maybe wait till the next uh, Q&A period for your comment okay so uh Nancy Nancy Yamahiro somebody who has a Japanese name thank you um this wasn't part of the
4: similes but it is something that I sort of internalized from some of the other stories. I'm not sure if they belong in a sutta. Um my memory of where I learned this along the way sort of fails me, but it's regarding the Naga warrior and um the strength of elephants and um uh, absorbing sort of the the confidence or um the strength that those stories uh, sort of evoke, and um, those became really important stories to me, uh, battling, you know, various health things, and um, so I don't know where I was going with that, um, but those were stories that have uh, been very helpful
1: to me. Mm, thank you. Thank you, Nancy. I'm glad they were helpful for you, and I think you're pointing out what I think is some of the brilliance, I would say, of that buddha's teaching is that with these similes just as nancy hamilton and nancy yamahiro are saying we can find a way that it's relevant for us make it our own that's supportive and meaningful and i don't know and make it part of our practice instead of just listening to some instructions or something thank Thank you nancy i love this idea of the nagas and the you know the elephant being strong thank you for bringing that in Okay, so now I'd like to pass it over to Kim. She's going to talk about some of these benefits of mindfulness of the body.
2: Great, thank you. So
5: we've made it to the last section of this sutta, where the Buddha describes 10 benefits of mindfulness of the body. And the section begins with some language that I found striking, Just echoing what Diana said about you read this again, and then you see new things. So it says, when mindfulness of the body has been repeatedly practiced, developed, cultivated, used as a vehicle, used as a basis, consolidated, and well undertaken, these 10 benefits may be expected. So on the one hand, it sounds a little bit like a high bar, you know, about all these verbs about using as a basis, repeatedly practiced, developed, cultivated, um, but, so maybe it is a high bar, but on the other hand, it also says that these benefits are to be expected. It doesn't say, oh, they might happen, they might not, you know, it sort of depends whether you're a good person or not, you know, it, it's just, if you do these practices, these, this is what will come about. So this um, clarity Kind of matches what had come just before. Ying had talked about that last week or, or a couple of days ago, where um, this idea of sort of being able to drive a chariot anywhere or easily release water from a pond. There's some, a certain strength or even power that is kind of implied um, from doing these practices of the body. There's a certain strength that comes. And that strength, interestingly, is in the mind. So We see some. um, Yeah. So let's look at these benefits. Um, The first three have to do with calmly or patiently handling various physical and mental states, say that in general. So we have a conqueror of discontent and delight and a conqueror of fear and dread. Those are the first two. So, we have, there's this way that we're not swayed by certain mental states that can arise. And some, several of these are unpleasant discontent, fear, dread, but also delight. <laughs> so, there's a way in which strong mental states of various kinds don't overcome the mind and tip us into uh, reactive responses or unskillful responses. And this maybe reminds us of um, Mara being able to penetrate. Uh, when the mind is not very strong. Uh, So we become overcome by these things. And then the third one um, is maybe more about things that come in from the outside that are not under our control. So we have cold and heat, hunger and thirst, gadflies, you know, these things like that. Um, And also ill-spoken, unwelcome words. So things that come in from other people and bodily feelings that are, you know, even as painful as might take our life. So, wow, in some sense, um, these are various unpleasant sensations that come in um, because the body is vulnerable, in a sense. You know, uh, to use the words that Lee Brasington used, we've left our sense organs hanging in the wind, (laughs) which is kind of how it is, right? We have these open sense doors and stuff comes into them. And so um, the mindfulness of the body helps us deal with all the things that impinge from without and also what arises within, right? That's what these first three are about. So we're going to get on to the genuine superpowers, but I would say that these first three could also be called superpowers if we could really handle all of these things. Imagine how different the world would be if more people could calmly endure some of these painful and difficult feelings. It would be a very different place. Um, So, But I do want to get on to some of these less uh, common benefits. So the fourth one is the ability to easily uh, attain jhana and go in and out of it and so forth. So interestingly, I'm just going to skip over that one (laughs) and say that that is a result that comes, you know, the more you practice um, these kinds of things that David was talking about, then, you know, the more readily they will come. So I want to focus um, now on these final six, which are benefits five through 10. And we'll spend some time exploring them uh, because they really aren't talked about that much in the sort of usual everyday Dharma talk setting, they're not as um, kind of relevant for that. So um, this these six together, benefits 5 through 10, have a name. Um, this list is called the Abhinya, and I'm going to put up a slide in a moment that shows you how to spell that. So um, this word Abhinya means direct knowledge, and it's the same word that Ying quoted at the end of her talk from section 29 of the Sutta, so if someone who develops mindfulness of body can incline their mind toward any state that may be realized by direct knowledge. That is the same word as the name of this list, the opinia. So I like to call these the of you know, the special knowledges when they're named in this form. Um, the special knowledges. And so I'm going to um, share my screen just to kind of organize these so you can see them. Where is this there? Can you see that? Somebody let me know. You can see that. You can. Okay, great. So the first, which is benefit number five, is a list of eight. um, I've listed them here. Eight, uh, what are called the supernormal powers. So these have their own name. They're called the Idi. And uh, interestingly, they're all mundane, meaning that none of them indicate any level of awakening you could do all of these things um, and not even be a stream enter. So it has various things about appearing, vanishing, going through walls, diving in and out of the earth as if it were water, walking on water without sinking, as if it were dry land, even stroking the sun and moon and influence with the body. So, wow, you know, these are kind of intriguing. Uh, Sometimes as a whole, these are called um, the transformation of the elements. So this I like that because we've learned earlier about discerning the body as elements as being a practice, and it leads toward various things I talked about, not self, etc. But another thing is that one gains some abilities to manipulate these elements. Perhaps we'll talk about that more in a moment. And so then all of these eight together are called the first special knowledge, the first abhinaya, and then there are five other abhinyas, the divine ear, uh, knowing the minds of other beings, a recollection of past lives, this thing called the divine eye, which means discerning the destination of beings according to their karma. And then the sixth is destruction of the taints. And I won't talk about that one either, because that's Diana's going to talk about that one. Um, so we have many in, intersecting lists, because numbers four through six of these abhinyas are also called the Tevija, the three knowledges. So the Buddha was very, um, or at least the way people organized his teachings was around uh, kinds of knowledge. And that was kind of his specialty, right? Knowledge opposes ignorance. So we have a lot of different, and different traditions, talk about knowledges in different ways. Okay, so I didn't want to talk um, a lot about, I want to talk now um, about how we can think about these uh, supernormal powers and special knowledges. Um, So, wow, how do we think about these? So um, are they real? I mean, and and if they are, are they good? (laughs) You know, do the Buddha encourage these? Um, So let's say first that when the Buddha talks about these, they're always contextualized as byproducts, rather than aims of deep samadhi practice, um, except for the, the last one. I remember, we're skipping the one that's awakening. That is, a, of course, a, um, a not mundane, uh, not super mundane. And that's the one that the Buddha does encourage. Diana will talk about that. So these are founded on the basis of the fourth jhana. That's the understanding in the text is that when one gains mastery of the fourth jhana, this is one of the things you can do with it. And so um, if you really study these early texts, we can't really write off these powers and knowledges. They're too prominent. They're mentioned in a number of different ways. There are monastic rules about not using them under certain conditions. And in suttas, the Buddha displays them, not that infrequently. I mean, not every sutta, but you, you, you can't avoid it, essentially. So I'm going to talk in some range around these. Um, and I encourage you not to totally ignore them and also not to kind of dismiss them in a denigrating way. Um, if you really want to not deal with them, there is a way to kind of respectfully set them aside. So just um, so I have this quote from Thich Han, who I, I'm happy to honor. He died about a week ago um, and he said, the miracle is not to walk on water. The miracle is to walk on the green earth in the present moment to appreciate the peace and beauty that are available now. So, you know, this is a really an an imminent sense of sacredness in the world. And maybe we don't need these these other kinds of uh, knowledges or powers Um, But if you want to think of them, you know, want to uh, engage a different way, probably the most common way to understand these in the modern world, and now I'm quoting the, the scholar Sarah Shaw, she says they are eloquent metaphors for the ability to listen, to empathize, to stand back and understand the minds and backgrounds of others as they progress through stages in their lives. So, She makes the divine ear into a power of really being able to listen well and reading the minds of other beings as the emotional attunement and intuition and sensitivity that the practice cultivates in our heart. You know, when we're less caught up in our own stuff, we become more attuned to others, more available. And so we gain kind of psychological subtlety as the mind purifies and strengthens, especially through jhana practice. So um, this is appealing, I I can go with this, Um, but it doesn't explain the supernormal powers like walking through walls and the transformation of the elements. Um, So if we want to move toward accepting these more on their own terms, we could maybe make an analogy to science. This is just an analogy, okay, I'm I'm equating ideas. Because science is a realm where modern people have developed and wield a lot of power. Our ability to manipulate and control materials is orders of magnitude, more precise and powerful than anything understood in the Bronze Age, which is when these texts were written um, were you know created so many of the items that we use in our everyday lives would be completely magical to people of ancient India for example zoom <laughs> look at this screen you are hearing and seeing somebody far away sounds like the divine ear and the divine eye for you know um and the the, the manipulation of materials that we've done to make say a laptop computer or even you know, I don't know, the lamp that's shining above you. How could you explain how it works that you flip a switch and light goes on? You know, this is not comprehensible. Uh, you couldn't explain electronics. It's just impossible. So, um, this, again, this is just an analogy so that you understand the extent of the power that we have now compared to them. So now making the analogy, we might imagine that somebody could, through the power of a concentrated mind, Gain not ability just to work with the material world, but deep understanding of how mind and matter work together such that they could be manipulated. Matter could be manipulated with the mind Um, or maybe we could know things much more deeply than the mind can know in its everyday scattered state. We're leaking energy off of our minds all the time through our random thoughts, through um, and, and when you move into concentrated states, you understand, wow, the mind is really dissipated in everyday consciousness compared to how it can gather. So it might be that we can have kind of a sense of awe and wonder for the power of a mind that is gathered together and is no longer leaking energy away, you know, like a a sieve, essentially. Imagine if you had a bowl instead of a sieve. So, you know, we might um, we might allow ourselves or kind of open to that idea that these supernormal powers is that um, they can evoke wonder in the person witnessing them. And maybe they really are real. I personally know monastics who talk about witnessing these from masters in Asia. Um, the great lay teacher Deepa Ma, who was known by Jack Joseph and Sharon and who came to teach at IMS in its early days, was said to have some of these powers and, and had and was, sa- and was said to have displayed them um, at our t- in her time in Asia. So in the end, though, um, of course, we, we shouldn't think too much about all of this um, intellectually. There's another text, AN 477, that says that the domain of the mind in jhana is unthinkable or imponderable. Um, and now, quoting Sujato's translation, it should not be thought about, and anyone who tries to think about it will go mad or get frustrated. So uh, the, the domain of the mind in jhana might really be beyond what we can think about. And so these powers are part of the domain of the mind in jhana. So maybe we don't want to get too wrapped up in that intellectually, which uh, is, so I hope I've given some range maybe of how to approach the these ideas. And maybe to reground us, our awakening does not depend on acquiring these powers, first of all, Um, and probably it doesn't even depend on our view of them. But I do hope that you've enjoyed uh, getting a little bit more information about them. They're not always talked about. And um, speaking of awakening, Mm -hmm. uh, that is the 10th benefit and the sixth abinya, and that one the Buddha is interested in and he does encourage. So Diana will talk about that later. But for now, you'll have a chance to talk. And I'll turn it over to Ying to set that up.
6: Yeah, thank you, Kim, for that. Uh, for me, it was a kind of heart-opening uh, talk that you offered. And maybe also mind-opening, right? And so uh, instead of limiting our... um. um I guess sometimes the the thinking mind is kind of lack of imagination (laughs) to uh, relate to some of the powers uh, in us. So you are going to go into a breakout room uh, to share um, uh, a little bit now. And so now that you've heard... Uh, many different um, embodied practices and the six embodied practices that Diana made a handout for, all the way from uh, breathing to uh, corpse contemplation. And then uh, David talked about um, jhana practices and and the progressing from there and all the way to awakening. So we wanted to get into groups uh, to reflect upon this question. So having heard about different practices and benefits to this point of the class, how might mindfulness of the body benefit or support your practice at this time? And so how might mindfulness of the body benefit or support your practice? So that's the reflection. Um, and I invite each of you to um, monologue a little and then pass it on to the next person. You have about um, 12, um, is it a 10, 12 minutes. Okay, 10 minutes. And um, I just keep an eye on the time. we
1: have taken her out now. Oh, good. My class has another hour.
6: <laughs> all right and so uh, you go around and, and if, um, uh, you, um, if you keep the a point short you can definitely go around for the second time if needed and then uh, let's see ah, uh, okay so the person with the shortest screen name that is the the name on your zoom uh, square uh, would go first
2: and so, are we ready, David? Okay. Perfect. So, here, here you are flying through the walls.
0: <laughs> yeah, exercising some of the superpowers.
3: All kinds of superpowers now.
0: Yeah. Okay. There's everybody coming back. Let's pause after the... Let me make sure everybody's back. Yeah. I think we're all back. Let's pause before uh, moving to uh, teaching from Diana to just get a sense of anything came up in the the, uh, breakout rooms that would be um, useful to share. Any questions that arose either in the breakout rooms or earlier today? And um, I'm thinking that Jerry had his hand up as we, as we began and maybe just ask Jerry whether the question he had then is still alive now. Um, but in any case, uh, why, don't, why don't we ask people to raise their Zoom hands if there are questions or comments, reflections, observations? And I see MR's. Oh, there was a thumbs up. Let me just check with MR. Was that a hand up? Okay, I see a no and shaken head. So let's turn to Thomas.
2: Thanks.
4: My question actually came when I reread the Sutta, and it's at the beginning of the jhanas. So there's a section where it says, again, because quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, and I was just wondering, you know, secluded from unwholesome states, is this referring to the five hindrances? Or what should we imagine if, if we talk about having no unwholesome states?
0: And I'll, I can just say something about that. Um, you know, it doesn't specify there. And I think any, uh, you know, any whole unwholesome state uh, would be included. The five hindrances is sort of one way to organize, you know, unwholesome states of mind. Uh, and there are maybe broader brushways too uh, states of mind where there 's desirous attachment, wanting clinging attachment, states of mind where there 's aversion, um, states of mind where there 's um, absorption in ideas of self you know so that 's a more general picture of the you know of the sorts of things that might constitute unwholesome states and I think even more generally than that, so we 've moved from five to three to one, um, even more, you know, so even more general is just anything that points the other direction, right? Anything that moves towards stillness um, in this practice is wholesome, is skillful, anything that moves us back away from that. And as these states become more subtle, subtle, that's the kind of movement of mind that may be most useful. Very little effort, but just as clear knowing that, ah, this, this state of mind, This leads onward towards greater ease, greater stillness, greater um, clarity. I hope that helps, Thomas. And uh, other teachers, Diana, Ying, Kim, any comments? Okay. Um, And I can't remember which hand goes in which order. So I'm going to say Kathleen. And Kathleen, you haven't spoken yet today. So go ahead. And I may have these things. I think
2: Nancy was before me.
0: Okay. Nancy. Nancy.
3: It's okay. I've already spoken today, so why don't you go,
0: Kathleen? Okay, let's go, Kathleen. And then Uh,
2: I just had a a technical question. Um, For example, if if my attention is on my teeth, is it my teeth or is it just teeth out in general? Um, Yeah. So over the past couple days, when I was working on this first grouping. I found it very difficult. um, The more I practiced to concentrate. Um, And then it came to the point where I didn't even know what I was exactly concentrating on Um, my own parts or just the part in general.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: It was all just kind of going around.
0: Uh, Yes. And I, I bow to you uh, just because this is exactly how these practices unfold, or I think or we could say are intended to unfold, maybe we begin thinking that we 're focusing on my teeth, my hair of head, my my hair of body, my skin, um, my bone, the first five uh, but the more we the more we pay attention, the more we notice that there isn't any hours in there there's no that and with that things things can open up in in wonderful ways. The opening that happens again is towards seeing clearly how the mind adds order or imposes order, how agency is created, how wanting aversion, delusion arise, those things become available when we let go of that sense of my teeth. So that sounds like a wonderful experience. And thank you for sharing because uh, it's sometimes easy to kind of look always toward the suffering that we encounter. And sometimes we don't notice the freedom when it's happening. The letting go that's happening.
2: Mm-hmm. It's always useful to
0: go, oh, there's some letting go and, and be aware of that. So Kathleen, thanks for sharing that.
2: Thanks. That was helpful. Thank you.
0: When uh, when you first spoke, turning to Nancy now, you said, my tea, teeth, and I heard you say, because I was confused, my tea. So back to Nancy. Maybe it's about tea. Maybe it's not. We'll see.
3: No, not about tea. <laughs> so my question is about... Um, uh, mindfulness of the body uh how to distinguish when say the the heart is is racing perhaps before speaking publicly or asking a question in front of a bunch of people um, you know one becomes aware of that and then like how to this is i guess a uh, um an indication that there's fear or nervousness, but sometimes the, the fear is natural, healthy. You think I, I need to back away from it or do I just, um, is it not a, a not a cue for backing away, but just something that I need to breathe through and, and press forward. So I I'm just a little confused about, um, how mindfulness of the body helps in that situation.
0: Yeah, great question. And, I think everybody here probably knows something of these sensations of stage fright, different things trigger stage fright in different people, of course, but public speaking is probably right up there at at the top. Um, But yeah, bringing attention to what's really happening in the body, you know, that's the practice. What it leads to is sort of unknown. And uh, I think we if we open up to what's happening in the body with the expectation that discomfort will go away, you know, that may not be that that may not, in fact, be the uh, the outcome. So the opening up to it, sort of whatever's happening, whatever's here in the here and now, uh, and maybe being agnostic about what the expected outcome is or the desired outcome, you know, can be a way to use the practice of mindfulness of the of attention <clears throat> directed to the body. So anyway, that's that's my thought. There's a wanting of a particular outcome, and letting go of that wanting, uh, you know, can be served by just being there with what's happening, no matter how uncomfortable it is. Diana Ying, Kim, Diana.
1: Yeah, maybe I'll add something. And I just, uh, Nancy, it's fantastic that you're noticing. Like, wait, there's a physical sensation. And then there's like a label that gets assigned to it. And even just to notice that distinction is exactly the direction we're going. And to notice that, oh, sometimes this set of physical sensations gets a particular label. Sometimes the same set gets a different label. And then it starts to undermine this idea that the labels are truth or absolutely what's happening. What's happening is the heart's beating faster, the, I don't know, whatever, whatever it might be be going there. And so just to notice the distinction between the first step is an, a physical sensation, and the second is assigning a label, because what happens after we assign a label, lots of meaning goes, and then off we go into a little bit of a story. It may, not, it may be a really short story, about, uh, why am I nervous? Oh, well, it's okay. I'm nervous. I shouldn't be nervous. And as a tiny little aside, I'll say that I had a health condition in which my heart would beat really fast sometimes. And I kept on thinking like, Oh, I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. But even saying that word, I was nervous, made me more nervous, which just led me down this whole thing. But then as I noticed like, Oh, this is just my heart doing its thing. Then I just wasn't nervous and didn't make a difference. So the exact same experience with a different, uh, I'm using the word label, but different understanding or something. So I just offer that to make that distinction is really powerful and is exactly the direction
5: we're going.
0: And it's a perfect, it also is a perfect segue to Diana's teaching. And I just want to point out that these questions really underline how this practice of mindfulness directed to the body can open us up to the most profound teachings in these traditions, including those that as Kim pointed out, are uniquely, we're going to move on now, Diana's going to talk about those that are unique to Buddhist practice that really talk about this particular way of being free that um, these texts give give us access to. So Diana.
1: Thank you, David. Well, I'm feeling a little bit like uh, everybody's like, okay, what's Diana going to say? The key to everything. Let's see here. So uh, we'll see how this unfolds. But first, I just want to um, bring us kind of like zoom out a little bit to this whole sutta. Um, it has this lovely beginning where the monks are talking amongst themselves. And then the Buddha comes and interrupts them and says, what, what were you guys talking about? And he does this in uh, a number of different suttas and a number of different suttas. They're talking about different things. So um, what are they talking about? They're talking about how it's fantastic that the Buddha knows and teaches that mindfulness of the body, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and great benefit. Great fruit and great benefit. And then when the Buddha hears that this is what they're talking about, he says, Well, mindfulness of the body, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and great benefit. And then he gives this whole discourse on Kaya Sutta, the mindfulness of the body. So it's in this context of how is it of great fruit and great benefit? And um, And we see this expression of great fruit and great benefit in a number of different suttas and a number of different practices. So it's not only mindfulness of the body, but something that these other practices in the settings of which uh, the Buddha um, is, is said this is always pointing towards awakening. Is and, and awakening gets described in different ways, um, and, and so, but there's this. This is how we can understand this great fruit and great benefit, and which makes sense, right? What great maha can also mean like you know big, you know great is fantastic, but all means really big. And what's the biggest benefit of practice? Awakening, of course, it is. So the whole sutta is given in this context. And but there's a number of different places in which the um they're pointing to a little bit uh indirectly to these great fruits and great benefits. And some of them they're embedded with some of these similes, these uh wonderful similes that uh the, the the sutta is unique in that it has so many of them. And as I mentioned, for me, I really enjoy having these similes. So um, in section 22, the um, when describing this sutta at the very beginning, talking about um, some of the, still again, and some of the progress through this mindfulness of the body, Buddha says, anyone who has developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body, instead of saying a great fruit and a great benefit said, has included within themselves whatever wholesome states there are. And Bhikkabodhi says, whatever wholesome states there are that partake of true knowledge, we could say that conduce to true knowledge. And true knowledge here is we could understand as awakening. Again, that awakening and knowledge, is um, there's a relationship there. To awaken is to have some knowledge, some understanding that is transformative, completely transformative. And then the simile that goes with us that says, just as anyone who has extended their mind over the great ocean, has included within it whatever streams there are that flow into the no, into the ocean, so whatever wholesome states there are that conduce of true knowledge, so this pointing to uh, awakening this uh, practice, the word for true knowledge is vija sometimes it gets just uh, knowledge here, but um Bodhi here is uh, throwing in the modifier true knowledge to emphasize that this is related to awakening. But that's not the only place that it's um, being pointed to. Also, again, with these similes, and um, I'll point out one of these similes that um, I I really uh, appreciate. This is in section 29, and I'm gonna read a little bit of uh, Sujato's translation rather than Bodhi's, because wow, when I looked at the Pali, I have no idea how to translate this. It's really complicated. It feels like there may be some corruption there or something like this. So Vikabodhi does his best. He translates it as closely as possible, but Sujato makes, he translates it in a way that is a little bit easier to read and easier to understand. Whereas the Pali is, uh, it's messy. So here's the, here's, uh, I think I, um, I, uh, The simile, I'm doing Bodhi, and then the other part, I'm doing Sujato. So section 29. Suppose set out on a stand, there were a water jug full of water right up to the brim so that crows could drink from it. And when a strong person tips it, would water come out? Yes, of course, right? This is not a trick question. And then, so the Buddha says, so when anyone has developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body, we could say is of great fruit and great benefit, but he says, they become capable of realizing anything that can be realized by insight, to which they extend the mind in each and every case. So he's pointing towards awakening, you just extend the mind that direction, create the conditions, awakening can happen. Okay, so those are some places in which awakening gets pointed to in this sutta, but how does it actually get described in this sutta? And for that, we can look at uh, benefits 8, 9, and 10. They all, as um, Kim said, Tevija, these become like the three knowledges. Some of you will know that the Buddha in his awakening story in one version of it, he, this is how he became awakened. And it's not how everybody becomes awakened, but apparently some people do, according to the Sutta and other Suttas. And um, one version of the Buddha's awakening includes this. So I'm going to offer one interpretation. There are lots of interpretations of these knowledges, but I'm going to offer one that's a little bit consistent with uh, how we see uh, in the and the suttas and this um, includes this idea of rebirth and just in the same ways with how cam talked about supernormal powers that these um, ideas about rebirth don't seem to be required for awakening and as i mentioned not everybody who becomes completely awakened has these experiences about rebirth but just to you know just as Kim did, just to introduce these ideas, we don't have to be so dismissive of them, but maybe respectfully think like, oh, okay, maybe this was uh, how we might understand it. Okay, so in section 40, is this eighth benefit? One recollects one's manifold past lives. And then um, there's an ellipsis in the um, and Bodhi's translation and directs one to go read another sutta so to, to get all the details. But what's here is all the aspects and particulars of one's past lives. So what does that mean, aspects and particulars? One way we might understand this, it's the sense of identity that a person had in their past life, their name the name of the family or clan to which one one belonged, the food they ate, and the pleasure and pain they experienced. If you went back to majima 51, you would see that that's this is the list. So what does this mean? The food one ate represents the kind of lifestyle they had. The pleasure and pain represents like the highlights and lowlights of their life. And so the, is that this recollection of um, all these past lives, all these different identities that a person had, you start to see how they are kind of like constructed. Maybe, for example, a particular name would have been me. Me. I have this name, me. My family would have been my family, my clan. And my lifestyle. So to this idea that we have this, uh, our identities are associated with a sense of I, me, and mine, right? So to see the past lives is to see all these different identities. And that they would have been, they die. Right? All these <laughs> rebirth actually really means re-death. I think that sometimes is a better way to think about it, is this re-death. So it didn't matter what identity they had, it all got created and passed away, right? This re-death. So this, and then another one arose in the next life and went away. So this arising and passing away again and again and again and again, like innumerable times, all these identities. So it's a way, one way we might interpret this knowledge is that there, all these identities are coming and going, arising and passing and there is not a substantial self that's going from one life to the other. It's just causes and conditions. This identity arises and then it passes away. But just with this um, an incredible time frame, And so we start to see that all creating these identities is futile. It all ends. Death, re-death, re-death, re-death. How many deaths? amazing number of deaths. So it doesn't matter how many past lives. And maybe it's also to say that the Buddha, most likely in all these re-deaths and lives, that so many identities. So it wasn't like, okay, as soon as I get the right identity, then it's going to stop. No, it just kept on going. So that's how we might understand the recollecting the past lives, the first knowledge. The second knowledge, which is also the ninth benefit in this, is just like um, Satipatthana practice, for those of you who are familiar with us, that there's this idea that we contemplate internally and then externally, right? That's part of the refrain. If you don't know that, that's perfectly fine. But just as he was seeing that um, all these identities he had uh, on myself, oh, this is happening with other people too. It's not unique to uh, the
2: Buddha's past lives everybody, everybody else is doing this too, and
1: not only that, so maybe I'll read the um, how it gets described here with the divine eye which is purified and surpasses the human, one sees the passing away and reappearing inferior, or superior, fair and ugly, fortunate, and unfortunate. And one understands how beings pass on according to their actions. So you see other beings are doing the same thing. And it passes on according to their actions. But it doesn't mean that just because you had exclusively good actions in one life, you get a good rebirth and redeath. That in fact, it might be that some action that happened in the distant past shows up in the next life, even though the preceding life was filled with all kinds of good things. So get you get dissuaded from this idea of like, okay, as long as I live a good life and only have exclusively uh, good actions, then I'll get, have a good rebirth and live happily ever after or something like this. But this idea, you kind of get dissuaded from any idea that any conditions, any actions are going to make a difference in terms of there's going to be this re-death again and again and again. So this disenchantment with what we call samsara, this rebirth, re-death. And we can reinterpret this to all be about, you know, in this present life. I'm talking about it in past lives. But we could also think about all these psychological moments, right, of rebirth and re-death. So one way to understand this is that the first knowledge gives this temporal dimension of the Buddha's realization going back and back through all this time. The second is maybe this spatial dimension of that there's no refuge. There's no existence in which you can escape this re-death, re-birth, re-death, re And it's with these deep understanding or seeing that there is this letting go
2: this really deep and maybe for us unfathomable letting go that allows this uprooting
1: of what is uh, traditionally called the taints here, sometimes also called influxes or effluents or defilements, but this sensuality, if I just get the conditions quite right, taint of becoming, this taint of ignorance, just this letting go that happens, it becomes completely awakened. There's no more of this underlying trying to find something else or get the conditions just
2: right or constructing a self that's finally going to be happy. It's all let go. And this is awakening. This destruction of the taints, asavas is the word. And this is the tenth benefit. This is the third knowledge and some of the descriptions of awakening.
1: Completely uprooted, never to be seen again. Never, not only like
2: temporarily put aside, but uprooted completely. So with that, I'll turn it over to David. So we want
0: to turn now to a little meditation. And in our notes to ourselves, we've called this an integrative meditation or a meditation of of integration, bringing together the various things that have come up today. I, I've tried very hard to not prepare in any way. To guide the meditation, really trying to um, find out what comes up here and now, and maybe illustrate a little bit for you how how flexibly we can find that these instructions presented in 119 fit uh, the the present moment we find ourselves in. Of course, this will be me providing some guidance, but um, it may tap into things that are coming up for you, or if nothing else, illustrate how how it's coming up for me. Kim and Diana have pointed out how these practices have this amazing power. This simple practice, you could say, having talked about it now in very uh, big theoretical terms, to put it in maybe just more mundane terms, that's the wrong term because it has a technical meaning here, but to put it in just everyday terms, The practice of mindfulness directed to the body allows us to become comfortable with our discomfort. And this can be from the lightest of discomfort, a little an itch, uh, some bodily sensations of burning, throbbing discomfort. um, To the profoundest, to become profoundly comfortable with our most profound discomforts, our greatest fears, our greatest longings, our greatest unknowings so let's bring our bring ourselves to uh, a a posture suitable to meditation and sit for really just a few minutes maybe allowing uh, ourselves to experience at any at any level in any way that we find available comfort with
2: discomfort
0: bringing the eyes down perhaps With the closing of the eyes or resting the eyes, turning our attention inward, balancing our engagement with the visual sphere and the zoom world with our inner world. Bringing attention to the posture, noticing in our bodies uh, the balance of the body and maybe making small adjustments to balance ease with curiosity, with energy, seeking a balance in the body and in mind of relaxed alertness or alert ease, and then bringing some attention to the breath, maybe noticing a deep in-breath and out-breath. And again, adjusting the balance of energy to ease.
2: And what comes up in
0: this guidance right now, here and now, is maybe the idea introduced by a question earlier. And maybe in the meditation now, which I think I'll leave largely quiet, largely silent, we can keep leaning, keep inclining the mind if more effort is necessary to keep choosing a direction of ease, direction of opening, a direction of lightness.
2: This takes some gentle
0: activity and intention and even discipline, maybe like mixing tea, where we keep working for a balance, a
2: balance of
0: enjoying the pleasantness of the meditation, knowing that that's part of the path, opening to whatever pleasant is available, whatever easeful
2: is available. Maybe making note or noticing that There can be some ease,
0: even with some discomfort. Maybe there's some busyness of mind, some questions unanswered, some things to do, something that happened earlier this morning or
2: in childhood. We can be easeful with what comes up, too.
0: If we find, as we may, that the mind moves away, attention gets snagged, caught up, the mind becomes contracted around a thought, a plan, a memory, thoughts of others, thoughts of ourselves in the world. we can gently guide the intention, our attention,
2: back to the body.
0: Drawing from the instructions of the sutta, we could notice the weight of the body, if that's useful. The stability of the body in this meditation
2: posture. The groundedness of the body, inevitably held to the earth by gravity.
0: alternately we could bring attention to the skin noticing the sensation of air on the skin and maybe we notice as was observed earlier today in a question that It's just the sensation of cool or warm
2: on this skin that covers the body. Nothing more, nothing less.
0: Perhaps even in this briefest of meditations, there's a sense of stilling happening. Maybe something akin to wading into
2: a still pond. As we step deeper in, we become
0: aware of ourselves steeped and drenched and instilled with the cooler, calmer waters into which we
2: we wade and stepped down. Mm-hmm.
0: Maybe as we sit, thoughts become wispier, less organized, and maybe we can let them drift out around us. Maybe in the stillness that we sit in, whatever part of the experience in which stillness is available, inclining toward that stillness, maybe there's a gentle undulation of things coming and going, experience arising and passing away. Sounds coming and going, the breath coming and going, thoughts coming and going. The breath, the thoughts, the sounds are ours. don't belong to us, don't need us, and we can let them come and go. Yin, over to you.
6: Thank you, David. So we're coming to an end of our uh, class today. Uh, We want to offer another opportunity for any questions,
2: comments that you may have at this moment. You use your Zoom hand. Oh, I see. Yang Kui, yes.
7: Hi, everybody. Um, I have a question about what Diana was explaining toward the end about the 10 benefits. And um, I sort of understood the way you were, uh, as, 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 as if it's a progression, like 7 lead to eight, seven eight nine, no, 8, 9, 10. Um, initially I was reading it as a list could come in any order. And, um, so I was just curious about that. And the, um, and then number nine, I was reading it as like, karma was what was important that we all pass away according to one's karma. Um, so that actually we could do good karma. We could reap Bennett, you know, reap merits and dedicate merits. Um, but the way you were explaining it, it sounds like you were going on this progression. we were dissuaded from any good, like it all is just awesome sorry, no matter what happens, we're gonna be having all these multiple lives and and until you get so sick of it, then you know you will be ready to let it all go um so I was just wondering if you could comment on that a little bit more um thank you, Diana, please,
1: thank you, young yeah, so um i would say in the description of the buddha's awakening that um it is kind of it's maybe we'll just say the tradition holds these last three uh, as a progression and we don't see one without the others well, i mean we see destruction of the taints without the first two but if we see the first one then we see all three so they come as kind of a unit and having said that um the order is as we see here Maybe it could be the other way around that this, the way that I'm interpreting it or, and I, I didn't come up with this idea all by myself. I'm influenced by some of Biko Inalio's writing, but, um it, it could be, um, you see the past lives, I'm uh, sorry, you, the past lives of others, the karma. And you're right. The way I did say it, I kind of, I did emphasize that it doesn't matter whether you do uh, good things in the world or not. Maybe I uh, overemphasized that. The point is that um, there's a number of suttas that point out that even though, let's say, for example, this life is filled with tremendous, really fantastic, wholesome, good actions, there might have been an action that was really bad in many preceding lives that, uh, influences your next life that comes to fruit. So it doesn't mean that just because you're doing good karma now means that, uh, your next life will be good. And the understanding is we've all done unskillful actions in past lives. So there will always be like this, uh, opportunity to have experienced the fruits of unwholesome actions of past lives. But and this is a particular frame, maybe I'll see, you know, we don't have to adopt this frame, but to see that um, these earlier knowledges are really to help us be- lose our enchantment with samsara, if, just to help us feel like, okay, there, there's no way out. There has to be, I can't just make all the conditions or
2: identities just right. I need, there's something else that needs to happen. So I don't know, Kui, if that was helpful. Okay, great, thank you. And I just say, maybe embedded in
6: that, um, there is uh, this um, particular way of organizing this is uh, in the direction of uh, complete relinquishment, right, relinquishing, letting go. Uh, but embedded in there, uh, in this knowledge, um, for me, there is also a sense of a deep knowing and the conditionality. And so also knowing and the actions that it leads to um, uh, what is beneficial for oneself and for the world. So there is that aspect of it as, as well. So it doesn't get excluded, um, but it's embedded in this However, the the presentation often can get um, uh, highlighted in the direction of letting go and, and the freedom. Yeah. So I think um, I'm going to turn it to Kim, who's going to wrap up the day for us today.
5: Okay, thank you. Um, maybe I'll just... I'm just inspired to add one more comment about conditionalities that, um, uh, which is the teaching that's being pointed to with these seeing all these lives and arising and passing and re-arising and repassing. Um, is that another part of that knowledge that comes is that there can't be a beginning or an end to all of that. Um, the Buddha talks about from beginningless time, there, has been, there have been beginningless rebirths, etc. And so seeing how conditions operate, it becomes nonsensical that there could be a, a beginning point before which there was nothing or an end point within the conditioned world. And that also drives this um, sense of, of looking for something that's not within all of that. And, as being said, the understanding comes also that there are certain there are conditions for being able to release, and those conditions are are wholesome. so you know we we understand all of that together, okay, so we are coming to the end of these um, regular class type sessions, eight thirty to ten sessions um, today, and then we'll move on to our a half day of practice on Saturday, from 8.30 to 12.30 um, Pacific time. And I guess I'll just say that you will get the handout that I showed on the screen if you want to read more about the supernormal powers and special knowledges, if you want to practice any of those before Saturday, for example, Um, uh, and it'll include the the Zoom link, it's the same one we've been at. and if you want to reread the whole sutta, I guess we keep saying that, but uh, you could and or um, or just coast, you know, on the practices you've developed so far. And we look forward to seeing you on Saturday for that um, somewhat more extended session, which will largely be practice um, if you're uh if you need a little teaser, we're going to practice all four postures. Um, so since this is the body, we'll do sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. We don't always get instruction in all those four kinds of meditation. So that might be of interest for some of you. All right. So um, see you
0: soon. Have a wonderful couple of days. Take care, everyone. Till Saturday. Bye-bye.
1: You're welcome thank to you. unmute and say goodbye Good you'd like. So, thank, thank, you. You.
2: Thank, thank you.
6: Thank you. Thank you. Everyone,
2: gratitude. Everyone, thank you. See you Saturday. See you on Saturday. Thank you all. Yeah.